Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we'll learn more about proposed changes at the federal level regarding nursing homes and staffing. Some argue increased staffing will improve patient care, but others say it could drive more nursing homes out of business. We'll follow some of the migrants who've arrived in Chicago and are working in the underground economy. We remember a deadly incident that occurred a century ago in central Illinois. Also, homelessness its a problem in most cities, and we'll find out steps that are being taken in Springfield to combat it. A new law in Illinois expands paid time off to nearly all employees. How does it work, and what do some small businesses think about it? And surfing in the Midwest in the winter. Those stories and more ahead this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Many nursing homes face chronic staffing shortages, and that could lead to inadequate care and dangerous environments for seniors. The Biden administration has proposed a new set of staffing requirements in an attempt to address the shortage. But some say the new proposal could cause more harm than good for already struggling facilities. From Iowa, Side Effects Public Media's Natalie Krebs has the story. It's noon at the Prairie View Skilled Nursing Home in Sanborn. Dozens of residents are in the cafeteria. They dig into their tater tot casseroles and vegetable beef stew. So they get a pick between like three salads, two main meals, three desserts, whatever they want to drink, and uh, it's always good. That's Wendy Nelson. She's been the administrator at this rural nursing home in western Iowa for nearly two decades. It's noisy in the cafeteria. But this changes quickly as Nelson leads me to the end of one of the halls to a unit behind a locked door. Uh, so this is kind of sad. We're gonna walk in here. But totally empty. This is, or was, Prairie View's memory care unit. It closed in 2022 due to staffing issues. We were kind of in a situation where we had uh, eight residents out of 16. And again, you have to have a nurse for the whole 24 hours. You have to have at least one to two aides for the whole 24 hours. Nelson says staffing shortages have gotten much worse since the pandemic, when she lost many staff members due to burnout. The nursing home is only at 60% capacity. In March of 2020, Prairie View was nearly full. Nelson says she's not getting applicants, even though she significantly bumped up pay for all positions from nursing to housekeeping. You're able to go to Casey's, um, you know, and get paid pretty good nowadays or McDonald's. This summer, more than half of nursing homes reported turning away prospective residents due to labor issues, according to a survey from the American Healthcare Association. But chronic staffing issues affect more than bed space. When they're understaffed, residents are more likely to receive poor care at nursing homes. The Biden administration proposed setting a minimum staffing level for nursing homes in September. They include having at least one registered nurse on site at all times and having a mandatory minimum amount of time employees spend with each resident daily. Labor unions representing nursing home workers and senior care organizations support the new rules. They say it will make nursing homes safer. Brad Anderson is the executive director of AARP Iowa. We have seen time and time again nursing homes that don't have adequate staffing uh, lead to serious problems when it comes to resident care. Not everyone feels the same way. 
Last month, a group of Republican governors, including those in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, and Indiana, sent a letter to the Biden administration. They urged it to reconsider its mandatory staffing proposal. They said they fear it could force more facilities to close. The American Healthcare Association, which represents nursing homes, estimates the rules will ultimately require facilities nationwide to hire more than 100,000 full-time workers who don't exist. Uh, a mandate is not going to create another single worker. Brent Willett is the president and CEO of the Iowa Healthcare Association. He says lawmakers should instead focus on policies to help increase the workforce. We should be talking about legal immigration reform. We should be talking about tax credits for healthcare workers um, and other strategies to, to find ways to fund apprenticeship programs. But some nursing home workers say they'd like to see the requirements in place. They would also like to see nursing homes held more accountable for staff safety. Unless it's forced, it will not happen. Savannah Hintz is a registered nurse who worked in Iowa nursing homes for a decade. Hintz left because she felt the for-profit facilities where she worked prioritized her bottom line over patient care and worker safety. They're dealing with people who have dementia or strokes. These are, these are adults who are physically strong and the training isn't there. You know, the, instead of these, these companies investing in dementia training, they are just putting it elsewhere. Hintz says she'd like to see policymakers make sure nursing home workers get the support they need. I'm Natalie Krebs, Side Effects Public Media. Thousands of Venezuelan migrants living in Chicago are desperate to find a job. If they arrived in the U.S. by July 31st of last year, they qualify for work permits and temporary relief from deportation. Others qualify if they have a humanitarian parole, but that leaves out many who arrived later or who came from other countries. So that forces migrants to be resourceful for cash. They're doing nails, cutting hair, delivering food, cleaning houses, and working construction. Adriana Cardona-McGigad brings us a story about migrants in the underground economy. Jesus Fernandez hauls a bucket and a large cleaning pole. In his backpack, he carries a big bottle of antifreeze and rugs. He's from Venezuela and wants to work, but he doesn't have a permit yet. With five kids to support back home, Fernandez cleans building windows. He walks along Monroe's Avenue in the uptown neighborhood offering his services. That's how he got one restaurant to call him regularly. He says, at first, the people at the restaurant told him they already had a person who cleaned the windows. That person was a no-show, so the next day, they ended up calling Fernandez. He says he makes about $60 in less than three hours. Some days he's busy and other days are just slow. I spoke with Leonardo Bonilla Gonzalez. He's a migrant who cooks about 80 Venezuelan-style food lunches with meat, rice, and plantains almost every day. He sells their lunches for $10 outside migrant shelters. He says people in the shelter place an order, and he has it ready for them the next day. 
He makes about $800 on good days, but he doesn't pocket all that money. He buys supplies and pays those who help him. Every day is a routine, a chain they've created. But getting creative is not easy for everyone, especially migrants with children and no one to watch over them. On a busy intersection near Albany Park, Denise is selling candy with her two sons. We're not using Denise's last name to protect her privacy. She's from Ecuador. While her 10-year-old sits on a bucket holding a bag of lollipops in one corner, Denise carries her three-year-old on her shoulders and dodges between cars as she tries to sell candy. Denise says she doesn't just want to beg for money. She makes about 30 bucks in one afternoon. And that's something. She needs to pay for bus passes and medicine for her children. She's staying at a migrant shelter and worries about long-term housing down the road. Undocumented workers were a presence in Chicago before the migrant crisis. Outside a Home Depot near the Avondale neighborhood, some of them say they've been getting construction gigs outside the store for years. But they say about 30 migrants now stand near the store in the mornings waiting for work. They worry the newcomers are bringing wages down for the rest of them. They take any work for really cheap, even $5 an hour, they say. Labor advocates say instead of seeing this situation as a crisis, Chicago should see this as an opportunity to boost the local economy and reignite the labor force in years to come. But that's a long time from now. So in the meantime, washing windows, selling candy, and cooking rice are among the many ways migrants are earning money on busy streets. Adriana Cardona-Magigad, WBEC News. Adults, you'll be happy to know that kids are still reading a lot. Peter Medlin talked with a school librarian, Nicole Folkman, about the Reader's Choice Award winners from the Association of Illinois School Library Educators, the books Illinois students love the most in 2023. So K-2 through is the Monarch Award, and I saw that that winner was Are You a Cheeseburger by Monica Arnaldo. Can you talk a little bit about that book? Oh, it's an absolutely adorable little book. A raccoon finds um, something in an alleyway. He's been looking for food and doesn't know that it's a seed, has no idea what it is, but knows that they love cheeseburgers and was like, are you a cheeseburger? And they're like, I think I'm supposed to be planted. And so raccoon plants the seed and they wonder together and wish together, what are you going to turn into? What are you going to be? Are you going to be a cheeseburger? It's a lot of fun and very funny. The young kids, of course, always really love funny books, especially. So it went I was going to say, well. a cute raccoon and yes. is about cheeseburgers. Like in the words of Stan Lee, enough said, enough said. You're like, right. how else do I need to sell it on you? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I saw that, and just to give people an idea also of how the voting works, too, I saw that over 66,000 Illinois students voted for the Monarch Award across more than 300 different schools. Absolutely. Yes. So what's great about the Monarch is that because picture books are meant to be shared, 
the librarians and classroom teachers are the ones experiencing this with them. And so they do get a lot of readership and a lot of participation because it can be very guided by the adults in their lives. As they get older, they're doing it a little more on their own. So we sometimes have fewer votes, but I will tell you, teenagers and middle school kids are reading. Next up, we've got the Blue STEM Award, and this Mm -hmm. is third through fifth, correct? Yes. Can you tell us about the winner there? The winner for the Blue STEM was Twins. Um, And it is a graphic novel that the students absolutely just loved. It is about twins who've always done everything together. And now suddenly they're in middle school. And one twin's not sure that she really wants to spend all of her time with her twin anymore. They haven't talked about it before. Just suddenly they're in different classes. And they've both decided now to run for student council president against each other. Drama, political intrigue. (laughs) So that one is uh, written by Varian Johnson, drawn by Shannon Wright. Well, and kind of a perfect segue into the conversation about the Rebecca Caudill Award, which is fourth through eighth. And that winner is also a comic book, also a graphic novel, but is a graphic memoir. Yes. Um, So it's called When Stars Are Scattered, and it was written by Victoria Jameson um, and Omar Mohammed, whose story it is. Um, And it is the story of two brothers who are refugees and looking out for each other and are orphaned, at least to their knowledge at this point. Um, And they are finding hope and help in a refugee camp and trying to find their way and survive. That was very, very popular. The students loved it. We don't always see the nonfiction doing terribly well once we get to middle school and up. Like they like it, but it's not usually what they select as their favorite. So I was a little bit surprised, but very pleasantly surprised. And then we'll finish off with The Lincoln, which is again, the the teen readers award. And this one, I was not super surprised by by the winner here. Can you tell us about (laughs) it a little bit? Yeah, so the winner was The Loop. It's the first book of a series. Uh, It's by Ben Oliver. And it is science fiction and suspense and dystopian. Can we talk a little bit about 2024, what has stood out to you about the ones that students will be voting on soon? I have a very, very small school. So my sample sizes for classes are literally like 12 kids. But once one book takes off with the right kid and they go, oh my gosh, this was great. You should read it it takes off. I know that one of the ones that's been very popular for my my middle school, my Rebecca Caudill, is the graphic novel City of Dragons, The Awakening Storm. It's action-packed. It's very exciting. It's fantasy and dragons. Dragons are huge for every age group right now. My Blue Stem at my school specifically, what's been really popular, we just started reading yesterday a book called The Great Stink, and it's a nonfiction book about poop pollution in London. And the kids are crazy about it. One, it's, of course, always funny anytime you have, like, poop in a book, right? Can't miss with that, But then also, right, we're talking about the environment and engineering and how we use engineering and science to help solve our problems. And that that has been happening throughout time and continues to this day. So so sometimes, I think especially with the, the youngest ones, it's like, which book have they read most recently sometimes ends up being their favorite. Listen, we're all guilty <laughs> of the recency bias. I totally understand. Right? I, I do really enjoy what you said about like, especially the middle and probably teen too, that you mm-hmm. like an ambassador. One student evangelist could push the other students into also reading and picking up and enjoying a book. 
Yes, for sure. And at the big schools, especially they have different promotional things they'll do. I know a lot of schools will make like little lapel pins that people can put on like their lanyards or their backpacks or whatever. And you can kind of see which ones are most popular by how many pins have been taken from each book. Oh, that's very fun. That's a really good metric. With my teenagers, I know that one book that broaches both the Rebecca Caudill and the Lincoln this year is called I Must Betray You by Ruta Sepetis. That is historical fiction. It's set in Romania. And so it's recent history, but history we don't often get to in school, but the students are interested about. It's the 1990s. So yes, that's historical fiction when it comes to teenagers. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I don't think we're far off from that being historical fiction for adults, honestly. But it's yes. Oh, you mean the 1900s. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Cole, is there anything? Again, like when we're thinking just broadly about the past couple years of the nominees and the award winners, have you been able to pick up on any themes? Sort of started talking 2020, 2021, that like, oh, are going to people going to want really lighthearted stuff, really happy stuff to kind of escape? And we have found that especially for middle school and teenagers, they want to dive deeper. They want to understand that difficulty and they want to figure out how to get through it. And so seeing books wherein teenagers are saving the world and getting through things and figuring out their feelings, those are huge. Those are always, always popular for middle school and high school. And there are lighthearted, fun things in there too, but the things that resonate the most and that kind of stick with them are the things that dive deeper into the difficult things of life. That's school librarian Nicole Folkman talking about the Reader's Choice Award winners from the Association of Illinois School Library Educators. And she spoke with Peter Medlin. Statewide continues. Stay right here. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. This month marks a somber anniversary in central Illinois. On January 3, 1924, at 3.30 a.m., 42 people lost their lives after a fire and explosion at the Corn Products Refining Company in Pekin. Now, a century later, successor company Alto Ingredients continues to process corn by the river, Colin Shope reports. The 100-year commemoration of the Corn Products Refining Company's starch explosion starts with a book, or a project to create a book. Alto Ingredients Vice President of Quality and Sustainability Stacy Swanson was tasked with finding out more about who was injured in the explosion. She couldn't find much, so she turned to her aunt, Verna Hankins. Because she worked so closely with the Tazewell County Historical and Genealogical Society, I thought, well, they may have more information. And so she reached out to them, started digging, and I think it turned into a full-time job for a couple months, really putting the book together. The result is a 164-page spiral-bound tome. Hankin says it doesn't really have a name, but the cover page reads 1924-2024, remembering those who died and suffered. A lot of computer research, a lot of time at the genealogy library. I went through newspaper articles corn products, magazines, and newsletters, just lots of research time. The breadth of Hankins' research is clear in the book. Newspaper citations come from as far as the Rock Island Argus and the Decatur Herald. An appendix at the back lists the burial sites of the men lost that day. Pictures range from historic to contemporary photographs of descendants. But for Hankins, the crowning achievement is the preservation of life stories. Like, for example, Edward Livingston Bearden. She says 
Bearden had a difficult life. He lost a twin brother at one, broke a hip at four, and lost his mother at 10. He was working at the plant at the age of 44 when the fire came and took the fingers off both hands. He lived with those injuries for 35 years for the rest of his life. So that's one man who suffered greatly. But how did this explosion that created so much suffering happen in the first place? Hankin says answers came from a lengthy and intensive investigation by Bureau of Chemistry engineer David James Price. All kinds of rumors were presented about how it could have started. Somebody smoked, somebody dropped a match, something did this. There were five theories. They chased them all down, and the one that they realized was true was that a, a bearing, as Todd mentioned, overheated in the conveyor system. An improperly lubricated bearing under the continuous duress of a conveyor system rose to such a temperature that it ignited its wooden casing. The plant processed cornstarch, which means combustible starch dust hangs in the air and on surfaces. A load of starch dumped onto the burning cover and set on fire, consequently igniting the dust in the air and causing the devastating blast. The Todd that Hankins mentioned is Todd Benton, Alto Ingredients Vice President of Operations. Benton says the industry has taken measures to avoid tragedies like the cornstarch explosion. They're typically not built inside anymore. Grain legs, conveyance systems like that are often outside. They all have uh, dust collection systems on them, so they'll actually pick the dust up and manage it uh, throughout the conveyance systems. Uh, the conveyance grain legs and elevators themselves have systems that monitor uh, belt alignments and temperatures. Worst case scenario, Benton says buildings are designed to vent the aftermath of an explosion. While modern technology would have alleviated some of the challenges faced by workers and first responders in 1924, some of them remain. It hit negative 23 degrees that morning, and the book describes firefighters slipping and sliding on the frozen water they had just tried to extinguish the blaze with. Beacon Fire Chief Trent Reese says it's a problem firefighters still face in extreme cold. Cold weather is going to be spills and falls and, and a lot of issues, a lot of broken hose. Uh, it'll freeze the pumps in the truck as well. So it's something that we, we have to, today, 100 years later, still battle. But Reese says there are lessons to take away from the incident for modern first responders. Fire prevention, inspections, things of that nature. We're, we're in these facilities several times a year through our partnerships to where we can, we can help each other see you know, issues that, that may come about. Alto CEO and President Brian McGregor says by putting the work in to document the victims of the explosion, McGregor feels the company is being a good steward of its place in the community. We're building something more than just selling products, right? We're selling, you know, it's important to continue to maintain a culture and a community and, and that's part of it. And most importantly for Hankins, the book documents the resilience and sacrifice of those injured and wounded. One man, Friedrich Fornoff, lost fingers on both hands in the explosion and returned to work at the plant for 46 years before retiring. As the book puts it, they carried on the best way they knew how. My focus going in was to find out about these men who had died and who were injured. From the book's conclusion, quote, they were what Americans are, diverse in backgrounds, in religious beliefs, in levels of education, in physical stature, in occupations. In the dark pre-dawn hours of January 3, 1924, this diverse group of Americans shared a terrible and terrifying common end. Their experiences should never be forgotten. I'm Colin Shope.
A number of the men were buried under a single memorial headstone in Pekin's Lakeside Cemetery. Some were unidentified. As part of the 100-year observance, a plaque is being added to the headstone. There's a connection between gun legislation and how many women serve in state houses of representatives. Charlie Schlinker has more on a new study. The study looks at 30 years of gun laws in all 50 states. Retired Illinois State University professor Rajiv Goel says as the percentage of women lawmakers increased since the 1980s, so did gun laws. Societal changes prompted a lot of firearm legislation, but the presence of women has an effect on gun law passage that's even higher than the amount of growth in the number of women lawmakers. So they don't have to have a majority necessarily, and very few states do, or if any, but uh, the critical mass seems to be in the 30 to 40 percent range to be effectively having an impact. Goel says he controlled for variables such as income, education, the percentage of people who own guns, the political tilt of a state, and population density. He has a couple theories why women still matter more. Women have uh, different behavioral aspects from men. There is research that uh, women are, in some instances, less competitive behavior. He says the proportion of female state House members had an impact on firearm legislation, but female state senators did not. That could be because state senators have longer terms than House members in many states, so representatives tend to be more responsive to constituent concerns because their elections come up faster and more often. Goel says that has implications for potential candidates interested in firearm legislation. It makes more sense or a more effectiveness is there when they're elected to the House than to the Senate. Oh, one more thing. The study finds the impact of women state representatives on gun legislation is true on both sides of the debate, not just gun control measures, but stand your ground, concealed carry, and gun control repeal bills as well. I'm Charlie Schlenker. A new state law allows most Illinois workers to begin earning paid time off. The new law allows employees to bank one hour of paid time off for every 40 hours worked, up to 40 hours a year, regardless of full or part-time status. From blooming to normal, Lauren Warnicke reports how some small business owners are adapting to the change. Co-owner Sarah McManus of the Garlic Press in Uptown Normal sees the value of paid time off for workers. If there's people that are really living paycheck to paycheck, that's a very big deal. McManus says her boutique kitchen and specialty gift shop has a strong reputation for being flexible when workers need time off. If their car breaks down or, or the trains kept them late, we don't we understand, but the difference is that they could get paid for that. Still, the new law presents a challenge for the garlic press, especially when combined with a $1 increase to the minimum wage. Both took effect Monday. Yes, it potentially could cost us more. The bottom line, there's no question. McManus says she's offset increased labor cost through marginal price increases, passing some of the burden to customers. Another strategy has been careful attention to profit margins when selecting merchandise. Some businesses, like convenience and grocery stores, have cut labor costs by installing more self-checkout machines. For McManus, it means her and Garlic Press co-owner Pam Loxon putting in extra hours. We're the ones that are staying till 7. We send everyone home and we work the floor. That's a direct way for us to save money on that bottom line. It's just one more thing for employers to factor in, putting pressure on already beleaguered business owners after struggling through the pandemic. 
That's assuming they're aware of the law in the first place. I will say that probably there are a ton of small businesses, especially, that have no idea this is happening. That's Katie McBride Rife, an employee benefits consultant at the Iowa based firm Cottingham and Butler. McBride Rife lives in Hudson and she serves on the Bloomington Normal Human Resources Council. We knew it was coming, but I mean, if you're not plugged in, if you're busy, like, uh, you know, get a two man shop, you don't know this kind of stuff. For larger employers with primarily full time workers, the new law may simply mean a change to the employee handbook. My advice to my clients has been like, look, if you're already offering 40 hours a year, all you have to do is say you can take it for any reason. Like adding that language in there is really all you've got to do. And you've got to offer it to all your part timers, too. But even large employers aren't totally clear on the particulars. McBride Rife says she's getting a lot of questions about compliance to the new law and doesn't have a lot of answers. If you're an employer that has employees all over the country, does this law apply to them or is it just Illinois based employees? Depends. <laughs> McBride Rife says tracking is an additional challenge. Payroll companies are developing ways for Illinois employers to keep track of the accrual process, but companies who manage payroll internally will need to develop a system to track time earned and time off. The law also stipulates workers can use paid time off for any reason and are not required to find someone to fill their shift. So if you're that retail shop that maybe has one or two people working, what if both of them call in the same day? And then how do you how do you staff your store? The law could further strain the restaurant industry, which is still recovering from the pandemic and works on razor thin staffing and profit margins. General Manager Joe Slane of Medici and Normal keeps an on-call list for emergencies. Prior to the Paid Leave for All Workers Act taking effect, employees were expected to cover a missed shift. We can't not have shifts covered during a day. We try to keep it to a minimum so people can make a decent amount of money so every person is important on that day. Like other part-time workers, servers and bartenders can now accrue up to 40 hours of paid time off a year at the minimum wage for tipped employees. That went up a dollar to $8.40 an hour. The federal wage for tipped workers is $2.30 an hour. Customers may have noticed small price increases already at Medici to cover increased food and labor costs. Selene says they're taking a wait-and-see approach as to how the law will affect staffing and costs. It's a big question mark on how that will all pan out. Original works by LGBTQ plus people at the University of Illinois comprise the Pride of the Illini Project, an audio anthology meant to combat the underrepresentation of queer people in media. Reporter Owen Henderson spoke with the person who put together the anthology. Now I know I just wanted to be a nice man like you and say it. But all I could do is watch Leia kiss you. And That's the song Blaster. It's one of the works in recent graduate Lindsay Peters' senior project, which combines her two areas of study, sound editing and the LGBTQ community. She wanted to combat the underrepresentation of the queer community in media, so she recorded and produced a series of original songs, poems, and short stories by queer people. So tell me a little bit about how you found people to participate and then collected these pieces. So I originally made like a flyer. I printed out a lot of those, put them all around campus in spots that I thought I could get a lot of interest. Essentially, when people were interested, they filled out a Google form, put in all their information, and then I was able to schedule them for a recording. Yeah, it was a really fun process. I loved getting to meet so many different people on campus. 
Were there any pieces in the collection that spoke to you in particular? One that I really liked was Ravishing by Montgomery Tufts. That one was about basically about the language that we use to describe gender and how our bodies fit into like a heteronormative world. And it's specifically about like gender fluidity. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. It's about like pronouns versus how we look versus how we're expected to look. Let's take a listen to that poem, Ravishing. Woman is traced in the breadth of your shoulders. She is engraved in the length of your legs. Her is scrawled in the soles of your feet. Wait for a different sky. Now the words that you read are these. Both, neither, any, other are set in the tendons of your neck. They is pressed in the beds of your fingernails. Them is gilded in the ridges of your teeth, and this organ will writhe again. I wanted to ask, what's the reception been like? The reception that I got from people who weren't involved, it's all been super positive so far, which I actually wasn't necessarily expecting. But we've come to like a place where everyone realizes how important this is. So I was really glad that I got so much positive feedback from people who may not normally hear from a queer side of things. And from the people themselves, they were all really excited about the final product. Some of them were like, this is great, but I don't want my voice to be public. So I had to do some like editing of voice filters and stuff like that, which was completely fine. And everyone had a different level of how public they wanted to be with it. But I think I found a way to share all the stories in the way that they wanted, in a way that they, they could share their like personal experience without giving them away if they wanted to remain anonymous or slightly anonymous. What has putting this anthology together meant to you as a queer person? I thought it was great to see so many different, I guess, perspectives, but every, every queer person has a different story. So hearing things from all different sides was really interesting. Like, obviously, my experience is going to look different from someone else's. So being able to share the stories of so many people and how they feel they're represented in the world, it really brought a different light because there were some people that it was just, here's a, here's a poem about this love that I had with someone. And it, even in that, like, it's so simple but you can learn so much about the queer experience. And then you get people who are trans and have had to hide it their whole lives. And like, you get that perspective as well. Yeah, it taught me a lot about how, yes, we're all one community, but we all experience this differently. Keep them safe from me, darling. I don't know when I'll be back. Or I'll have to take them back. That's reporter Owen Henderson speaking with the Pride of the Illini creator, Lindsay Peters. This is Statewide. We've got more to come. We'll take a closer look at homelessness and how one community is trying to combat the problem. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Surfing in the winter in Illinois. We'll hear more. That story's still ahead. 
Recent strides have been made both at the state and local levels to tackle homelessness. A new $9 million helping hands shelter officially opened this week in Springfield, and the state's $85 million investment over the last two years means new funds for that community and others. Maureen McKinney reports. Hey, right here, my man. God bless you, sir. I appreciate everything that comes my way. Have a nice new year. All homeless people ain't bad people. Uh, and hopefully things are going to look up, you know, pretty soon. You know, so I think That's Darnell Smith, 62-year-old, former cook, is sitting beside a shopping cart with his belongings outside the cannabis dispensary on Adams Street. Smith says he's lived in Springfield most of his life. He's been staying on the streets downtown since he was evicted from his studio apartment in July, but he won't be using the brand new $9 million helping hand shelter on Shale Road. I can't do the shelter thing, that's just not me. For several reasons, there's too many, too many people around me, too many people with mental health issues. There's one thing being out here with five or six people, because they come and go, and I'm still here at the end of the night. But when you put me in a forced environment where I'm around 30 or 40 people, I just can't deal with that. The new Helping Hands facility triples the number of beds. It also has a health clinic, kitchen, and rooms for case management and other purposes. That and plans to create more homes for the unsheltered are indications that the community has begun serious work to resolve the formidable problem of homelessness but Smith's disinterest signifies how vexing the problem is. Laura Davis is Executive Director of Helping Hands. I think as a community, we have a lot of plans in place and we're starting to see them come together. But she cautions much more needs to happen. Past attempts to deal with the unhoused failed politically. Sangamon County Board Chairman Andy Van Meter supports the plan because it makes use of empty space and paid through American Rescue Plan Act funds. People were just beside themselves that in Mr. Lincoln's hometown we had such a mess on our hands and uh, I think the whole community was just sort of crying out to find a solution. And Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you pull together and work out a solution. And So I, I hope we're on our road towards a solution now. Josh Sabo is executive director of the recently expanded Heartland Housed Agency. The entity allocates funding and collaborates with support groups for the homeless. Funded by the city, county, and capital township, the organization has a countywide plan to get functional homelessness to zero by 2028. He called the Helping Hands expansion a tremendous assist, providing adequate emergency shelter for men and women in Springfield. We will have a shelter that's open 24 hours a day, every day of the year, for the first time really in, in our city's history, even though we've, you know, we've had the overflow shelter and we've kind of had some mix and match type of things going on. The goal over the course of the plan is to get 765 additional housing opportunities. We've grossly underfunded the programs that help people exit homelessness. How big is the problem of homelessness in the city? Laura Davis says it's hard to determine. She was part of a team that took an official federal housing and urban development count last January. That, she says, doesn't paint a full picture. 
According to the HUD report, Sangamon County had 306 people in shelters, transitional housing, and on the street that night in January. But Helping Hands alone served about 800 people last year, and a 1,000 to 1,200 large homeless population is likely a more realistic number. Meanwhile, anecdotally, she says, the number appears to be on the rise. It's unclear what Darnell Smith, the man who had been sleeping on Adams Street, has been doing for shelter in below zero temperatures this week. He told me earlier in January that he knows people who are trying to get him into a hotel room that would let him get cleaned up and go back into the workforce and eventually get a new apartment. I'm Maureen McKinney. Researchers at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign say the use of Tylenol during pregnancy can cause language delays in children. Anna Savchinka has more. Acetaminophen is considered the safest pain reliever available to pregnant women over the counter. But a U of I study has found that the drug can result in children learning fewer words. Here's researcher Susan Schantz. Higher acetaminophen use during pregnancy, especially during the third trimester of pregnancy, was associated with um, poorer language skills, specifically smaller vocabulary and shorter sentences in children at two years of age. As there are no safer alternatives to acetaminophen, Shantz advises expecting mothers to use the drug with caution. On the Safchenko, the WBEZ News. Thousands of Illinois Community College students spend their time and money on classes that don't earn them any credit. They're developmental education classes. The state passed a law back in 2021 to reform developmental education, and Peter Medlin checks in on what the reforms look like so far. Kishwaukee College English instructor Carl First is finishing up a quick lesson. There are only eight students in the class, so he spends most of the time roaming around the room, helping them individually with their essays. This is a developmental English class. These students didn't place into the college-level course because of their high school GPA or test scores. And before the Developmental Education Reform Act, many of them would pay for a full semester class earning zero credit to work their way into a college-level course. Judson Curry is the dean in the Office of Instruction at Kishwaukee. Even if they persevere through those classes, you know, that's added time and expense, and so you lose students along the way. But how big of a problem is it? Well, in Illinois, just one in five community college students placed in developmental classes end up graduating. And even though the number is going down, a lot of Illinois students are still placed in developmental classes. For years, 40% of high school grads entering community colleges took at least one remedial class. That fell to 27% last year because colleges were forced to reform both how students are placed into classes and the classes themselves. That's why Mr. First Class at Kishwaukee is a co-requisite course. That means they're placed into the regular credit-bearing English 101 class like any other student, but they also get extra layers of support. At Kish, developmental students stay an hour after the regular class to get additional help, which is what's happening right now. I'm going to give you some practice with it right away. This is pretty new for a lot of community colleges across the state. Kishwaukee's offered a few co-requisite English classes, but this fall they have significantly scaled it up for English and math. And to do that effectively, the school worked with the Partnership for College Completion. They're a nonprofit focused on equity in higher education, and they also provide resources for colleges expanding co-requisite offerings. Lisa Castillo-Richmond is the executive director 
The Partnership for College Completion is working with over 20 colleges in Illinois. And even though it's still early in the reform process, some of the progress is clear. 59% of students in co-requisite courses passed a math gateway course in their first year compared to 15% for the next model of reform and 13% in the traditional developmental education model. That's according to a report the Illinois Community College Board released earlier this year, and course completion percentages went up substantially for English classes, too. National data also points to more student success with this model. And Castillo-Richmond says it's also important to disaggregate the data by race. The data in the report shows that in 2021-22, 8% of black students passed the traditional developmental math course in their first year. In co-requisite classes, it went up to 50%. And with Hispanic students, it went from 13% to 59%. And there were similar jumps for English. But she stresses that there's still a long way to go. Almost all Illinois community colleges still use traditional developmental classes at least a little bit. There's also the issue of how students are placed into developmental classes. Before the Reform Act, colleges would most often rely on ACT scores or placement exams to decide if a student needed remedial courses. Now they're supposed to be using multiple measures, including those test scores, high school GPA, transitional courses, and more. But Castillo-Richmond says there's still a lot of variance on how placement works depending on the college. Maybe one third of them have adopted multiple measures as mandated by the DERA legislation. Back at Kishwaukee, first says it's still too early to say if co-requisite courses will lead to more success for his students, but he's optimistic, especially because of the one-on-one -on -one support he can offer. Unlike before, they're around students who are college ready and they see their behaviors and their approaches and I can see the developmental students modeling those things, which is great. And he says that attendance has been noticeably higher than in the traditional developmental classes, but only time will tell if the extra support will actually help propel them to success. I'm Peter Medlin. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world. You probably don't associate the Midwest with surfing, especially in the winter. Yet in Chicago and northwest Indiana, along Lake Michigan, a hearty bunch of souls find the frigid swells of the lake the perfect place to ride the waves. Mary Dixon spoke with Zach Noth, who wrote about the community of winter surfers for public station WBEZ. So how did you come up with this story? Well, people kept seeing surfers on Lake Michigan in the winter and wondering what the heck is going on. And it just so happened that a friend of mine who is a professor at DePaul had a student who had gone out and done a photo shoot uh, of the surfers in Whiting, Indiana. So there's a culture around winter surfing. Who is out there? Yeah, that's one of the most interesting parts of the story for me is that uh, they call themselves the South End Surf Club. And it's really a collection of people uh, all from all sorts of different backgrounds. You have a lot of folks that work in the Calumet industrial area. You have machinists and steel workers and painters. And then you have uh, what people might assume more typical surfers, uh, artists and uh, uh, writers and DJs, <laughs> more free spirits. So it's an interesting collection of people. And uh, they kind of like to keep their spots secret, not have a lot of interference from, you know, other surfers. And they kind of feel like they have it to themselves. So it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, I guess, outlaw culture. 
Um, speaking of outlaws, you see these folks surfing along Chicago beaches, which are closed to the public after Labor Day. So is this, strictly speaking, legal? Well, in 2009, after a one of the surfers that I talked to, Jack Flynn, was arrested and actually put in jail in his uh, in his wetsuit, the Park District announced uh, that they were going to open some of the beaches for surfing. And so uh, they did so, and, and everybody proceeded with that in mind. However, there's still some confusion because the Park District website actually says that there is no surfing at these beaches. Uh, the places where it was supposed to be opened up was Montrose and 57th Street year-round, and then Rainbow and Osterman in uh, all of the seasons except the summer. What are some of the risks of, of winter surfing on Lake Michigan? Well, of course, the ever-present risk is hypothermia. Uh, there's a lot of strange currents out there. Uh, there's the ice shelves that you've seen build, build up along the beaches and uh, can be dangerous because you could break through the ice. But you're talking about a group of people that have a lot of experience on the water and a lot of experience surfing. And they're also benefiting from the new technology around wetsuits. You can now buy a wetsuit that is about five or six millimeters thick, and you can still move around in it. So that's made surfing more available and doable in these winter months. I think the toughest part for them is uh, after surfing, when they have to take the wetsuit off, uh, before they get in their car. You see these people surfing in the winter with the high waves, and you think, you got to be crazy to do this. Um, what is the draw, do you think, of winter surfing? Well, the one thing that uh, they asked me is, don't say that we're crazy, whatever you do. <laughs> uh, they talk about it being very exhilarating, refreshing, you know, during the winter when some people get the seasonal blues and the skies are gray. It's something that wakes them up and it's exciting. And I think the risk is part of the attraction. Um, they go out together, they go out uh, with others for safety and they feel like they're kind of surviving against all the odds. And so there's a certain bonding that uh, takes place uh, with these surfers. That's Zach Noth. He wrote about winter surfing along Lake Michigan, and he spoke with Mary Dixon. We're out of time for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being with us, and don't forget to join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts. You can also hear our show through the NPR app and the station's website. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.